You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You'll find you get what you need Hello, this is Rish Outfield And you are listening to the Rish Outcast And I'm sorry I'm, I'm just going to let the uh, song play So no edits at all Last night there was this terrible thunderstorm. Um, your father kissed me on the dance floor for the very first time that night. And it was then that I realized I would spend the rest of my I life with him. What, Lorraine? Last night there was this thunderstorm and it was magnificent. Lightning. She was gonna meet. Uh, you know, we've all seen a thunderstorm where there is lightning. We've all seen a thunderstorm with impressive lightning. But I don't know that I've ever seen a thunderstorm where there were lightning strikes every two or three seconds. And some would be small and some would just be white. And then others would be giant streaks of lightning across the sky. And I went, I got in the car and I drove out to the closest view, closest place where there was a, a view that was unencumbered by trees and power lines and churches and you know, all that stuff, all these trappings of modern life. And I just sat there and I watched the lightning and uh, it was really, Amazing! It was one of those things where I was just like, I wish I had somebody here to share this with me. It's like, wow, oh, did you see that one? He said to no one. And it occurred to me today that if I had brought this recorder and started recording in that lightning storm, then it would almost be like there was somebody with me. You were, Uh, but it was a missed opportunity. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird. And I've commented on this before that my, that I had basically three friends left in the world and two of them moved away. And that is a, uh, a challenge. It's something that, that, I haven't quite gotten used to. And that means that I go out to eat a lot less. And I, I've actually been writing a little bit. It certainly means that I podcast a lot more. But socializing, talking to other people, that has taken a huge hit. Um, and it's, it's so good to have friends. It's good to have people that you confide in. When I lived in L.A., I had this friend, and we hit it off immediately. Well, maybe not immediately, but uh, for me, quite immediately. And uh, there was this bond between us that got really, really, really strong. And at one point, I told him... You know, I see a movie or see something on TV or I hear a joke or I have an experience at work and I don't feel I've truly experienced it until I tell you about it. And he said, ooh, you know, 
there, there was this movie with Jeremy Irons in it where he played identical twin gynecologists. And one of them said that to the other, where he's like, I haven't spoken to somebody. I haven't made love to a woman. No, no. I got it wrong. He said he was criticizing the other one, saying you haven't had a conversation. You haven't done anything. You haven't made love to a woman until you've told me about it. Uh, And I guess it was his way of explaining that I was, that this was a, a, a dependent relationship, that this was, that I was a parasite, that I was uh, a venom parasite that didn't give extra strength, or a six-foot tongue. And so I thought about that. I saw that lightning storm and I didn't tell anybody about it. So did I really see that lightning storm? And did it mean anything? These are questions that I guess you ask yourself as you get older, as you realize, oh, the clock is ticking. The time in the hourglass, gosh, the sand is almost run out. That's rough. What do I have to show for it? In the summer of 2018, I ran out of money. And that hadn't happened in a long time. I had always, I don't want to say been frugal, but I had put a little bit aside every month. I have for the last 10 years. Uh, uh, you know, a, a, an emergency fund kind of thing, if you want to say that. The, set it aside a tiny portion of your, of your income every month. And then if something goes wrong, if you hit a deer, uh, you, you know, if you get sick, uh, if you go on a week's vacation and you, that means you miss a whole week of work, um, then you have something to back that up. You have something. Ooh, this song effing sucks. Then you have something to help you out. And I don't know what happened. I had a checking account and I got an email for the very first time, or maybe it had happened years ago and that's why I set up the email to let me know if my checking account dropped below $50. And it did. I got that email that said you have no money. And I looked at, uh, you know, the check that I had coming in and I, I realized that I had spread myself too thin. I didn't have anything. And how did I get there? And partly how I got there is I explained, I took a week off from work and I didn't curtail my spending at all. But also, I spent a lot of money summer of 2018. I spent money as though there was no limit to money, that whatever I put on my credit card, I would be able to pay off. And I I know that a lot of people understand where I'm coming from on that. And a lot of people may be unsympathetic, where they're like, dude, that happens to me. 
half the year. That happens to me three months of the year. That happens to me every month. I know there are people that live paycheck to paycheck, and if something goes wrong with that paycheck or if something goes wrong, period, then they're in trouble. And that's scary to me, but maybe not to somebody else who's just like, no, that's life. And so I'm still trying to recover from that. I mean, I'm not even close to recovering from that. Because like I said, I spent money like there was no tomorrow. I spent money like there was a Rolling Stones song playing and I started talking about there not being much time left before I was going to die. And it'll take me a while to get back on top if I can. And I just need to learn from that and be like, hey, remember you were putting money aside. And yeah, see, that's the thing is I had that money set aside and I had forgotten about it. But it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to save me from the financial hole I'm in. I'm just going to have to pay it off a little bit at a time. But more importantly, I need to push on the brakes as far as spending goes. There are things that I want. There are things that would be nice. Too bad. I guess I've just had it too well for too long. Whereas like if I want something, well, yeah, I can buy that. I, I used to blow money on things that ultimately, okay, I still do, on things that ultimately have little value, and maybe most people do. You buy something that you think, well, this might fill the void inside me. Ooh, hey, that looks good. That might stave off depression for a while. Ooh, what about that thing? Do you think that that might distract me from the knowledge that death is imminent? just for, you know, an hour, half hour. <laughs> I guess maybe I do that a lot and I need to stop, but it's a hard habit to break. And we'll see if I have any luck breaking it over the next few months. But let's see, what was the, why did I even start recording this? To tell you that I am like Jeremy Irons in that movie? It was a David Cronenberg movie, which is worse. I mean, but, but, you know, we have our issues. We have our challenges. We have our limitations. And I, I have several. What will I leave when I'm gone? I guess that I, I, I would leave this podcast because internet is forever, as I heard somebody say the other day. Oh, also, I guess my writing. Apropos of nothing, I have published another book. And this one is available now. And so maybe I'll talk about that for the next few minutes. Is that cool? Huh, I didn't hear you. I'm not sure if it was the lack of enthusiasm with which you answered or whether you didn't answer at all. The book that, that I just put out is one that I wrote last year, and it's called 10,000 Coffins. And let me not bury the lead, it's a horror book. I mean, with a title like 10,000 Coffins, hopefully it's not a YA romance. But it is a horror story told among the trappings of a science fiction story. 10,000 Coffins takes place on a sleeper ship, a colony ship headed for a new world, 
and the titul yeah my my lack of education came out when I said titular my titular coffins are the 10,000 cryobeds cryopods on board the ship where the colonists are sleeping it's a journey that lasts 90 years and when the ship arrives they will all wake up and I suppose it'll be as though no time has passed. Not an original idea, is it? The main character is named Brooklyn List and she is a young woman who is the med tech, the medical technician on board the ship. She's one of a dozen med techs and, and though all the colonists are sleeping the entire journey, there are three people awake aboard the ship at any given time. There is a pilot to fly the ship, there is a, an engineer to fix things that go wrong inevitably on such a long journey, and then there is a med tech who needs to help people with illness or what happens if somebody wakes up, what happens if somebody uh, dies in one of those cryopods. They're awake for a big long stretch and then they go into cryosleep themselves and a new med tech, a new pilot, a new engineer uh, is awakened to relieve them. Though they spend most of the 90 years sleeping, they're still going to age eight or nine years on board the ship, which is just part and parcel of the life that they have chosen. They get to go to a new colony. Cool. Anyway, the story begins with uh, Brooke jogging and she smells something on the sleep deck where all of the cryopods are. And uh, yeah, one of the colonists has died, but they've died horribly. Their eyes are wide with terror or pain. And it was the smell that alerted Brooke, not the computers, the monitors that observe the vital signs, the heart rate, the EKG, the body temperature. And she looks and turns out that this corpse's monitor was switched with the cryopod next to it so that no one would know that she was dead. It was a deliberate act. She had been murdered and then somebody covered it up. And Brooke investigates. She tells the other two crew members and discovers that this is not an isolated incident, that there is a fourth person that is awake on the ship. And, and, and that somebody is a murderer. Anyhow, that's the premise. I know it's, I, I, I spoke way too long. You can't fit all that on the back of a book. But I wrote that and uh, it doesn't have a geriatric protagonist, and it doesn't have a geeky loser protagonist like me either. This is a, a young woman and she's attractive. She has a fiance who is also asleep on the ship. I wrote it thinking that it would be a short story, but the first uh, bit, the first chapter, if you will, was so long that I was just like, oh shoot, this could be a novel if I wrote novels. and. I had to sit down and think about, okay, well, how is this going to end? Where is this going? 
what subplots do we want? What other characters are in this story? What is the ship like? So I, I did significantly more world building in this one than I usually do. And having said that, the, the book is still not novel length. I was compiling it today, breaking it into chapters and stuff, and, and that took forever. I think it was like a three-hour process just to get it formatted correctly, which should not be. But I think if Ben Genklevich were here with me, he would say, you haven't made love to a woman until you've told me about it. No, Big Anklevich would tell me that if I just wrote the whole thing on a computer, an MS Word or whatever, formatting as I go, then that three hours would not have been necessary. But I also don't write in chapter form. It's something that I've started doing retroactively when I prepare the audiobook. I complained about it with a mark on the sky. I break my stories up into little sections and sometimes those sections are super long and sometimes they're super short. And so when I am editing the audio and I've got a chapter that is 16 minutes long and then I have a chapter that's three minutes long, I just feel like I've done something wrong. And, and that may not necessarily be the case, but just in the back of my mind, there's a little voice that says, well, all the chapters should be about the same length. But while I was editing it today, I thought if this had to be a novel, it absolutely had to be, what could I add? How much more could I put in here? And there are details that I don't go into. And there was a scene that I sort of had in my mind. In fact, it, the book itself was inspired by, did you ever see Michael Crichton's movie, Coma? There's this scene where Jean-Vievre Bougeot, who is the protagonist, the main character of that movie, she discovers a conspiracy. She, she discovers that, you know, there's the nefarious deeds going on and they come after her. And there's a scene where there's a ton of bodies hanging in a uh, room. Can't think of the word I'm looking for. And she sort of hides among them from this dude that, that wants to kill her. And I think that that's where 10,000 Coffins came from, is I had this idea of a cat and mouse game aboard a ship where there were no people. You know what I mean? It's like an empty ship. And so I came up with that idea of the colonists are all asleep. The crew members, there's only three awake at any given time, so that we would have an excuse to have that scene where there is a single young woman being chased by whether it was a killer or a bunch of killers or, or what it was and there's nobody that can help her and I never exactly wrote that scene the way that I envisioned it the way that came into my head when I got the idea for this book I don't know if that's a failure either or if that's fine I thought, and I'm tiptoeing a little bit, because like Into the Furnace, which is the first novel that I wrote, I, I didn't want to give away what the, the twist was. Is that fair? I'm not saying that this book has a twist, but it's just, it's so easy to say a father discovers that one of his children is a demon. 
because it's a sales, a selling point to that story. It's just like, oh, really? Ooh, that tells you whether you're going to enjoy the story or not just from that one sentence. But if that revelation doesn't come till the end of the book, or if you're saving that revelation, almost like, you know, a punchline of a joke, then you can't give it away when you're pitching the, the story. And, and, and that's kind of how this is with me. Yeah, it would be easy to just talk about that aspect of the story, that the child is a demon. But I want you to read the book. I want you to buy the book. I want you to get the audiobook. Would you get it if I presented it in that way? That a father discovers that his kid is a demon? I think that that would be stupid. Oh, okay, Rosemary's Baby. Before I ever saw Rosemary's Baby, the Roman Polanski 1968 movie, I knew the ending of the movie in the same way as I knew the ending of Soylent Green. I knew the ending of Planet of the Apes. These movies that end with a twist, I knew them already. So Rosemary's Baby is a slow burn. It is a book, it is a movie, well, it's a book too, it's Ira Levin's book, but it's a movie that goes at a, I don't want to say a snail's pace, but it goes at a leisurely pace, a 1970s pace, even though it was 1968. Let's just say Polanski was ahead of his time. With Mia Farrow's character suspecting that something is wrong. What is going on? What is going on with my husband? Is Guy hiding something? Huh. Am I losing my mind? Did I see what I just thought I saw? No, surely I didn't. Wait, what did she mean by that? Are the neighbors plotting against me? No, they could. They're hiding something. What are they hiding? There's paranoia. There is misdirection. You know, is Guy cheating on her? That sort of thing. There is the fear that she might be losing her mind. What if this is all in my head? The payoff to Rosemary's Baby is the ending of the film, the last minute of the film. And when I saw that movie, I knew what that last minute was, and so I just waited for it. And any time there was misdirection, any time there was Mia Farrow going, oh, I was wrong. I thought that something was going on, but clearly it isn't. I was like, oh no, girlfriend, you was right the first time. He got his father's eyes. But Guy's eyes are normal. Um, so it, it influenced my viewing of the, it impacted my enjoyment of the film. It detracted from my enjoyment of the film, knowing how it was going to end. I'll never know how I would have responded to that movie, not knowing where it was going. There's a million movies like that. And luckily I have experienced half of them the way that you're supposed to. A lot of times trailers will give away stuff, which just pisses me off. But other times, yeah, just, you know, you've, it's part of the consciousness of film fans or, I mean, it's just like, you know what Rosebud is before you've ever seen Citizen Kane. I almost said Casablanca. Wouldn't that have been hilarious if I had just left that in? We'll take like three movies and deliberately mess them up. It's like, you know, Bruce Willis is a ghost going into the usual suspects or even worse, you know that Tyler Durden is Edward Norton going into Get Out. You know that Al Pacino is Keanu Reeves' father going into Boo, a Medea Halloween 2. 
it impacts the way that you see these movies. It impacts your enjoyment of them. And, and so, yeah, it's like I'm trying to keep a little bit back, not to sour. I, I mean, who knows? I, I, it, maybe it's hubris to think, to compare my stuff to these classics of modern cinema. Maybe it's hubris to say my book, 10,000 Coffins, is every bit as good as Boo a Medea Halloween 2. Yeah, I wouldn't dare compare it to the first one. Okay, usually I will present a clip. I think I already did. I'm trying to remember. There was an episode where I mentioned this and I read a couple pages. I read them out of the notebook, I think, and there were a couple parts where I was like, Ew, I can't read my own handwriting. So I guess I should pick a different scene. Yeah, that's something we have discussed as well, but I'm going to discuss it again. When you're doing an audiobook, you need to select a sample a five-minute segment of your book that's going to hook listeners. It's kind of like doing the trailer. I've already had this whole conversation. So to make a long story short, I struggled with coming up with what section to, to, to share as my sample. I mean, it's easy. A lot of people, a lot of people are saying, a lot of people just present the first five minutes of their book because it's safe, it's smart. It's easy. Maybe it's more easy than it is smart, but it's definitely safe. You're usually not going to ruin things by sharing the first five minutes of, of your book. Oftentimes, though, the first five minutes is creating the setting, establishing relationships, developing a character or characters, and you don't want necessarily to start with that. You want to find something juicy. You want to find something with conflict in it or tension or fear or comedy or action. Well, this will be fun. Let's listen to what I ultimately chose to be the audio sample for my audiobook. It was faint, but it was bad. Rot. The unmistakable smell of something dead. Not good. Brooke whispered, and had the momentary, and uncharacteristic, temptation to just leave it and go her way. Her meanderings brought her to C-Block every couple of weeks or so, and maybe by then the smell would be gone. But she was the medical technician, and if a colonist had expired, it was her job to deal with it. The cryopods were laid out in tidy rows, like big transparent clams, each one holding a young, healthy, would-be colonist, and each monitored by a dimly glowing vital signs readout. If the occupant of a cryobed had a medical emergency, the readout would brighten, drawing attention to itself. An alarm would sound, and a message would be sent to all appropriate corners of the ship, alerting the medic on duty. Well, Brooke's sense of smell told her she'd missed the alarm on this one, and more than a while ago. She peered across the rows of pods, looking for the readout screen that was flashing, or at least brighter than the ones around it. None were. So she followed her nose. It took her to a shadowy corner of C-Block, where the smell intensified, and she knew the problem bed when she saw it. One of the pods had a lid that was unsealed a couple of centimeters. The smell was ripe and nauseating, 
and when Brooke brought the lights up around it, her breath caught in her throat. The woman inside the cryopod had once been blonde and cherubic, but she didn't look that way now. Her eyes, clouded and white, were wide, and her face was frozen in a rictus of terror. Or maybe that was Brooke's emotions projecting on the corpse. Regardless, she was dead, and not placidly in her sleep. Her hands were balled into tight gray fists, and her bathrobe-like tunic was half off. There were bloodstains on its white fabric, long since dried to brown. Brooke was positive there was no vermin on the ship. Various animals were on board, but down in deck G, and all of them in cryosleep too. Otherwise, there might be flies and such buzzing about. As it was, Brooke did wonder if there might not be rats wandering around, like were constantly aboard old seafaring vessels back on Earth, because the dead woman appeared to have bites on her arms, breasts, and throat. She put her hand sympathetically on her own throat and felt her pulse racing there. She remembered to breathe and palmed the nearest intercom button on the wall. Carl, I've got a problem up on sleep deck, she said, keeping as much agitation out of her voice as she could. She was not entirely successful. Brooke had made an effort to avoid looking at the dead woman's face, instead inspecting the pod, trying to figure out what went wrong with it. No obvious problems, despite it being partway open. And when she reviewed the vital signs readout, she'd discovered something almost as upsetting as the corpse. The readouts insisted the patient was fine. Heart rate, breathing, blood pressure, brain activity, body temperature, all normal. She read through the biobed report, and it insisted the dead woman's pod was still hermetically sealed, despite the fact that it was half open in front of her. Baffling. And then, Brooke got an icy chill, and the sensation that someone was watching her. She looked around, but except for this section of cryopods, everything was in semi-darkness. There were fifteen rows of beds, then a vestibule, then fifteen more beds, and a wall. But as she peered across, was there somebody there, standing by the cargo elevator? Could be. Yeah, there you go. Should we try this a third time, or should we just take the hint? Okay, so, last year, I recorded this episode up to the point where you are listening, and then uh, somehow I lost the rest of the episode. And so this year, 2019, I did it again. I sat down and I recorded the rest of the episode through to the end, and I got ready to edit it today, and I hear something like this. Well, that's odd. I basically shared that same bit that I told you about. And so now I wonder, do I go back edit out the part where I talked about that, or do I share something else with you? Okay, so whether you could understand that or not, it's unusable. It comes in and, and out, and the parts you can understand, well, it, 
it doesn't matter because the parts that you don't understand, I can't just cut that out and have it still make sense. Plus there's a big stretch where the sound quality was so bad I couldn't even make out what I was saying. Uh, so here we are again. We're going to try this one last time, finish this episode, put it all out. The good news is 10,000 Coffins is available on both Amazon and Audible. And the other two times that I recorded this, I had no idea if that would ever work, if that would ever happen. But the part that I just played was when we came back from the clip. And I asked myself the musical question, oh, the sample section for Audible is the same as the part I just summed up. So do I go back and cut out the part where I summed it up, or do I maybe include a different sample? Like, I was thinking about just including like the first chapter all by itself on here. But because I've had all these headaches and it's going to take me a long time to redo this, I'm sure, I think I'm just going to leave it as is, redundant though it might be. Sorry. So it's difficult to know what to share about this and what not to. Maybe if I had somebody interviewing me and they could ask me questions and I could answer them. I don't know if you've ever followed an author or, you know, an actor when they're promoting a project and you hear them tell the same story more than once. It surprised me the first time that I heard that. I'd just be like, well, geez, that's the same thing he said on Leno. But my, my guess is they have a couple of set stories that they tell over and over again, and then they switch it up depending on the questions that they are asked. But on something like The Tonight Show, the press agent usually prepares the host with a couple of questions that they recommend that they ask that are springboards to these same friggin' stories. So this may be the third time that I'm doing this episode. It's the only time that you'll hear me do it. But depending on what's on my mind or depending on what uh, happened recently or what I've been thinking about, uh, that determines what I focus on, what part of the story I talk about, what part of the, the inspiration for 10,000 Coffins I focus on. The last, ep the last time that I did this, the one where the audio is unusable, I talked about... I watched a movie the other day. I, I rented, or I, I picked up a movie from the library. I didn't rent it, gratefully. And it wasn't very good, and I got bored partway through, so I started to look it up on Rotten Tomatoes. I started to read the reviews, and the movie was called The Fifth Wave. I'm not going to talk about it here because there's another episode that I recorded that is not lost, apparently, where I do talk about the fifth wave because it's a lot more relevant to the story that I present in that episode of The Outcast. And, oh, and also, usually when there's a, a movie or a book that I talk about on here that's bad, I don't say the title because, um, because I'm cowardly, because I don't want somebody to say, hey, you're not one-third the writer that Brendan Sanderson is. And, and feel free to say that. Because nobody is one-third the writer that Brandon Sanderson is. That guy wrote half of a book in the time that I've been re-recording this episode. And he's a nice guy. 
I don't know why I go back to him again and again and again. Well, it's because I see him all the time. Okay, let's go back. The reason I brought up the fifth wave the last time I did this was because I read a review on Rotten Tomatoes and it said, I don't know how faithful this movie adaptation is to the YA book that it's based on. But I do know that the filmmakers who made this movie have seen a lot of other movies, which they managed to rip off a bit here and a bit there to make their cobbled together uber YA movie called The Fifth Wave. And I remember that resonating with me when I was producing the audiobook for this because in translating it to audio, I had sort of a step away from the writing process and I could see some of the mechanism. I could see, oh, okay, so this part was influenced by Star Trek, clearly. And this part was Alien, maybe. And the movie that most directly influenced Coffins is Coma, the Michael Crichton movie with uh, Michael Douglas and Jean-Vierre Bougeot in it. Specifically, there is a scene in that movie where she has uncovered this, this, this conspiracy. Jean-Vierre Bougeot has, and she's hiding in a room where there are all these essentially dead bodies hanging from wires in the ceiling. Somebody comes after her and she's hiding among them. And the people see one of the bodies begin to swing and they can tell, okay, that that's where she is. It was an all right movie, Coma. But that scene really struck a nerve with me. And I essentially got the idea of, I want to make a science fiction movie where there's a woman and she's running from a murderer on a sleeper ship. And she tries to hide among all the sleeping colonists. I just, I liked that visual a lot. And I thought it worked great in Coma. And so I wrote this book as a way to tell that scene. And then I finished the book. And, and you know how it is. It goes in its own direction. My own experiences, my own pop culture exposure steered the ship, so to speak, in its own direction. And I got to the end of the book and I hadn't written that scene. The scene where the female protagonist hides from the killer among the the dead or, or living dead or sleeping colonists. And so I did go back and I wrote that scene, but it never ends up being exactly like the scene in Coma, which is probably good because, like I said, somebody called the makers of the fifth wave out on that in their movie. And yeah, it would bug me if somebody said, oh, a big fan of Coma, are you? You know, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't know anything about writing science fiction. It's not my genre. I, I like the movies, but it's not something that I write a lot of. It's not something that I, I'm good at. What I'm good at is, is horror and, to a lesser extent, other, other genres. So this is much more of a horror story set in space than a real science fiction piece. And I guess it sounds like I'm apologizing for that. I'm not. 
I like what I like. I, you know, when Stephanie Meyer wrote Twilight, she was taken to task for saying that she was not a fan of horror movies. She was not a fan of vampire movies. She had seen almost none of them. And she just wanted to write something that would appeal to her as not a fan of those things. And so the people that like Dracula, the people that like Interview with the Vampire, Nosferatu, or Lost Boys, or Fright Night, or Scream, Blackula, Scream, were insulted by that. But to each their own. Whatever gets you to a creative place, it doesn't really matter what the springboard is. You know what I mean? We've heard about these fan fiction stories that become novels that are totally different, that are something else, that are in Fifty Shades' case extraordinarily successful. And uh, it doesn't matter what they started out as. Although, boy, that's weird that I mentioned Twilight and then I mentioned Fifty Shades, which started out as Twilight fan fiction. And the name of the ship in 10,000 Coffins is The Dawn Breaks, which may or may not be an homage to a Stephanie Meyer novel. Oh. So, if you're a Patreon supporter of mine, you, you've heard this story multiple times, and so just skip to the end. I really struggled with this audiobook. Uh, I feel like I worked harder on this one than I do on most, and it really wore out its welcome. You see, I became, during the process of this piece, uh, just a, a real stickler, a perfectionist for audio quality. And I got it into my head to cut out like all the little lip sounds, the smacks and the noises that your mouth makes as you talk, you know, your lips get sticky and they stick together and it makes a little noise right before you say a word. Uh, and I remember going to a, to the very first audiobook panel I went to at the New Media Expo and somebody on there says, you have to remove all of the breath sounds. And I was just horrified. I was like, what? I didn't know that. Holy smoke, that's so much work. Yeah, but for the last couple of years, I have removed the breath sounds. But now, I remove the breath sounds, I remove the sounds of the chair squeaking under myself, and now I have to remove all the little mouth sounds, and it, it's exhausting. And it's also ruined me for being an audiobook listener, because now I will hear in professional audiobooks the little mouth sounds and breath sounds and just noises that wouldn't have taken me out of the story two years ago. But now I'm just like, oh, somebody skipped that. I wonder if it's okay if I skipped that myself. Oh no, now I'm noticing it again. Do other people notice this? And I think the answer is no. The other real irritating thing about this was the cover art. And I've complained about the cover art and probably will continue to complain about it until the end of time. But if you look at the episode art, I'm including the cover art in the lower left-hand corner. That's something that my buddy Austin drew for me 
back in like February or March of 2018. And I told and he, he says, when do you need this by? And I said, boy, it's going to take me a while to do the audio book. I'm going to say July. No, I'm going to say August. I need it by August of 2018. That's when I'll have the audio book done. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah oh, that's easy. Sure, I, I thought you'd need it by Thursday or something like that. And part of me wishes that I had said, oh, Thursday, yes, next Thursday, definitely. Splunge for me, too. But I didn't. I said, oh, you have until August. And here we are. We're talking April, May 2019 when it's finally out. So he had a long, long time to work on it. But Austin is the kind of guy who gets really excited about something right now and he works on it then he loses interest he stops i've told him a bunch of times oh you should you this thing is 70 percent done finish it it's great i think you could sell this right somebody could use this or i could use this and he he can't he won't finish it so i i given him what i wanted sort of a a skeleton idea of okay th this is what i want for the art he said oh yeah uh, sounds great i can do that and he the first thing that he drew was the pod the cryopod and i said oh yeah that's great can you change can you put this little thing here and he said sure and then he was able to with the computer multiply the cryopods and he showed that to me and i was like wow that's great wow, that's great and then he never worked on it again. He never went any farther than what he showed me in February of 2018. And as I started working on this audiobook, I, I began to get nervous and I didn't know what to do. I talked to Gino Moretto, who does cover art for me all the time, told him my quandary and he was very sympathetic and he's very helpful. And he even at one point sat down and did a sketch of what he thought I was talking about for the cover art. And it was much more like coma than what I had in mind. But I think there's irony there that you could see these cryopods hanging from the ceilings. And uh, basically the idea that I had was I wanted a bunch of them identical. And then I wanted one of them to be different and have a hand pressed against the glass from the inside, a, a, a hand of someone experiencing terror. And I felt like that is the perfect symbol for this book. You see a bunch of cryopods, so you know that it's science fiction. You see someone inside a cryopod who is very afraid. So, as I got closer and closer to finishing 10,000 Coffins, and it took months. August came and went, September came and went, 2018 came and went, but as I got closer, I, I became more and more worried. And I, I emailed Austin and I said, hey, if you would just send me that, uh, it would be great. And he would say, I'm, I'm not done. And so I finally said, hey, can you just send me what you have? It doesn't matter if it's not finished, just send it to me. And he didn't reply. I had two chapters left to edit. And I still didn't have the cover art, and it was stressing me out. I had one chapter left to edit. I had finished editing all the chapters. All I had to do now was the author's note. 
and the end credits. I finished the author's note. All I had to do was the end credit. Oh, six minutes later, I'm done. Now I need the cover art. So I texted Austin one more time and I said, I just finished the audio. I really need that cover. Can you please send it to me? And I didn't get a response and I was worried, sad, and you know, not angry, but yeah, probably angry. And I thought, well, I guess the fact that he didn't reply means that we're not friends anymore. So I emailed Gino relating to him the same story and said, you know, it just, it breaks my heart. We're just, we're not friends anymore. And that cover art was really, really good, but what else can I do? I've, I need to move on. And Gino said, hey, I will see what I can do. And then I got a text from Austin and he had sent along the image from last year. And again, it looked really, really good. And it was just a shame that it wasn't done, but what can you do? It had a lot of black space at the top and it didn't have the hand. And it was like, you know what, who cares? I'm just going to run it as is. I asked Gino if he wouldn't mind putting my name and the title on there in the black place. And uh, we would just run it the way it is. I just didn't care anymore. I was too tired of it to care anymore. I wanted to move on to the next project. I felt like the time that I had spent with 10,000 Coffins, I could have written another book. That's probably true. Uh, but Gino did more than just make a logo for me. He also finished the image. He put a hand in there himself and he did a couple other cosmetic changes that made the cover look more like what I had in my mind. And I, I you know, I can't thank him enough. The guy, I mean, he's really talented, but more than that, he is willing to help me out. He's generous with his time. So I thank him for that. Like I said, or maybe I haven't said it yet this episode, but I was just going to release it with no cover art at all. Just black with the text in green, because I like green. But now I don't have to. Now you don't have to see that. I'm pleased with the cover art. So thank you to Austin, thank you to Gino, and thank you to you. So uh, I was listening to a bit more of the lost audio, of the really scratchy, terrible audio. And in that, I elaborate more about, I don't know how to write science fiction. I don't know anything about space travel. I don't know anything about future technology. A lot of times you will read science fiction where the technology is exactly the same as it was when the story was written, except there's space travel, or except we've got colonies on Mars, or except there are robots walking among us, or except we have relationships with alien observers. And with this, it's kind of like that. Like the, the character of the captain of the ship, his name's Gustafsson, I just, I wanted him to talk in an old-fashioned way. Give him like old sayings. He'd say things like kitten caboodle, and that sort of thing. And I said, well, he's not ancient. He's not an old geezer in anything. I figured he was born in 1960 or something like that. 1961, right? But this is a science fiction book. And I've got a character who's born in 
1960 in it? I guess that just shows... I also don't know how to write a well-rounded, capable, intelligent female protagonist. She's not a geek. She's not ugly. She's got a boyfriend. She's not lonely, misunderstood. She doesn't belong in a Tim Burton movie. I don't know how to write somebody like that. And so basically I just wrote her as a person with the same kind of fears that I would have in her place. And I guess we discovered another thing that I, I, I need to learn how to do. But uh, all of that being said, I, I still like the book and I'm proud of it. And I think I learned something from writing it. <laughs> Here's another thing that you may already know, but I am learning about myself. I discovered that I will do almost anything to prevent myself from releasing a book, from putting it out. During all this headache with Austin and, and the cover art not coming, I was tempted to just say, you know what, screw it. I don't care anymore. I'm not going to put it out. Despite all the work that I put into it, I just don't want to do it anymore. The editing process went slower on this book than anything I've ever done before. And when I say editing process, it was also recording the dang thing. I would sit down and I would record for 40 minutes on a chapter. You know, redoing this line. I don't like the way that this sounds. Oh, I'm going to put in a couple of extra words. Let me redo this thing. And then I sit down and edit it a week later or a month later or whenever. And the finished chapter is seven minutes long or 11 minutes long. That is so much wasted time. Just anything to not put it out. Like I just, oh, so there's a character who is Anton Supov. He's a Russian crew member and he talks in this voice. This is how Anton Supov's character spoke the first time I did the audiobook. And I was editing like chapter seven or eight. And he refers to like Gorky Park and he refers to Moscow and he says a phrase in Russian. And I was like, oh no. He can't have that weird voice that I gave him. I'm going to go through and redo all of Anton's lines so that instead of sounding like this, he now sounds like this. And he has a way of talking and I have the same exact words for his character. But now it has a, a Russian accent. And it took forever to do that too, you know. Now I had to go back to all these chapters that were done and do them again. Or, you know, take all the lines in every single finished chapter and splice them in there and hope that the audio quality was the same or similar enough that the listener wouldn't notice. <laughs> I didn't need to do that. I should not have done that. It was irresponsible of me. And it means that you're hearing this months, right? Weeks later than you would have. I think that the audio for the rest of the recording is fine. And so we now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast 
already in progress. If it's available to buy, either in text version or in audio version, maybe I learned something from it. Nope, I was wrong. Like 40 seconds after that part where I was just like, okay, everything's good through the end, it went to hell. So we're just going to uh, redo the end of the episode as well. Uh, the point I was trying to make then was if this book is available to buy either in text version or audio version, then it represents a step forward in me overcoming these demons or weaknesses or limitations in myself. And because this book was not within my wheelhouse, maybe I learned something from that, from writing something that is not easy for me, that is not exactly like everything else I've ever written. Maybe you grow from that. At the same time, maybe you get down the road and you look back and you go, whoa, what a weird road that was. I hope to never be there again. But it's good to stretch. And every single thing that I put out makes me more able to put more stuff out. Uh, I originally ended the episode, the, the 10,000 Coppins episode, talking about Solo, a Star Wars story which was new and still in theaters the first time that I did this episode. And I was talking about, I, I read a review of it where they said, you know, it's not a terrible movie, but it's not a great movie either. It's middle of the road. And I feel like they really play it safe. And that's too bad because I would rather they have swung for the fences, really tried and failed, than just phone it in and create something bland and unremarkable. They used The Phantom Menace as an example of one of those failures where they really made an effort and the reviewer appreciated that. And so I'm, I guess I was thinking of 10,000 Coffins in that context. And it's not to say that 10,000 Coffins isn't bland and unremarkable, but it is to say that I made an effort to stretch a little bit, to write something that I hadn't written before. So who knows? Maybe from that experience, from that effort, I will grow as a writer and a performer. This whole episode has been an attempt to get you to buy 10,000 coffins. And I hope that my listeners don't resent these episodes that are basically plugging a project because every one of these that comes out is a mini triumph for me. And I don't know that anybody can have too many mini triumphs. I think that's it. I'm going to leave you alone. Once again, thank you for listening to my show. If you're a fan of my work, hey, thanks for being a fan. I, if you're not a fan, well, thanks for being a, a masochist enough to put yourself through this. You must have had some kind of motivation for listening to all of this. But you know what? 
I still like you, even if you don't like me. Maybe there's growth there too. <laughs> I've been Rish Outfield, and in space, no one can hear you podcast. Good night. The Rish Outcast is presented under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives license. That license enables you to share the file with anyone, but not to charge for it or alter it. A license to kill, by the way, enables me to kill anyone I please, whenever I please. You judge which is better. If you didn't completely despise this episode, why don't you support the show with our Patreon fund over at patreon.com? Every dollar gives me more strength to put Outfield in his place. Where it's like, if I want something, well, yeah, I can buy that. I once said to Big Anklevich, look, I could... Well, do I even want to tell that story? Because in retrospect, it was like, wow, I came off as a total butthole in that story. And that was not my intention. So I guess I won't tell it. Is that an outtake? Should I tell it in the outtakes? Forget that I said anything. The premise is that there is a sleeper ship. One of those ships where... A ton of colonists are going to a new world, and they are all put to sleep until they get there in cryosleep. And there is a crew that maintains the ship and also, yeah, maintains the many sleeping colonists. And the crew only have three members awake at any one given time. And that is a pilot, of course, for the ship, a mechanic an engineer, somebody to fix the things that inevitably go wrong, and then a medical technician for health reasons, for maintaining the, the things that aren't machines, maintaining the people. So basically what happens is a crew member is awakened from cryosleep and told what's going on on the ship, and the crewman that they are relieving goes into cryosleep and they're dead to the world for years until their name comes up in the rotation again. And the person that's awake on the wake shift, I believe I established they have a year in which they are awake. I'm not sure if I did the math that way and it was a year or it was an eight month wake and then like 12 year sleep But yeah, my guess was that there were 12 of each, 12 pilots, 12 medical technicians, 12 engineers, and they are asleep for 11 years and awake for one. And in the 90 years that it's going to take this ship to get to the colony, to get to the new world, these crewmen are all going to age eight or nine years, maybe. I don't know. Perhaps I'm not selling this the best way I could. Should I start again? So 10,000 Coffins tells the tale of MedTech Brooklyn List. And she is... is, Okay, let me try it one more time. And I thought, well, I guess the fact that he didn't reply means that we're not friends anymore.
and that was weird. I there are lots of friends that I have had that now we're not friends anymore, and just because because it's difficult to keep something like that going. Uh, I just fell asleep trying to podcast. What was I saying? Uh, I guess we're not friends anymore. The character of the captain of the ship. I wrote him as though he were born in like 1955, 1960. Now you know how old that character would be in, let's say this is in 2119. Yeah, I, but I just, I wanted an old fashioned character like Bones on Star Trek. Like I said, uh, I was influenced by Star Trek, definitely. And so he uses sort of archaic language and he is old fashioned. He is a little bit backward. One of those characters that looks behind instead of looking forward and he... Well, I fell asleep again.